Developing Asia will require around $30 trillion in infrastructure investment through 2030, according to the Asian Development Bank. But how has COVID-19 affected the infrastructure landscape and what role can the sector play in pandemic recovery across the region? In this podcast, New Zealand Infrastructure Commission Board Chair Alan Bollard describes post-pandemic infrastructure development conditions and impacts in Asia and the Pacific. He also addresses onward project financing, climate change, and sustainability considerations. The discussion draws on an ADBI feature speaker webinar with Dr. Bollard, who served as Reserve Bank of New Zealand Governor during the global financial crisis and its aftermath, as well as Executive Director of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Secretariat in Singapore from 2013 to 2018. Hi, Dr. Bollard. Thanks for joining Asia's Developing Future. Can you start by describing infrastructure demand and development challenges in Asia and the Pacific from a strategic big picture standpoint? In very developed economies like Japan, Singapore and South Korea, they've taken advantage of the fact that they can have central control over investment decisions. They can move very fast. They can access quite cheap construction labor and they've got a good flow of savings to fund these investments. When we look at some of the developing Asian economies, ones where ADBI focuses their attention, we do see some other big challenges, urbanization and the very congested city problems. So whether it's roads, bridges, tunnels, wires, pipes, cables, drains, ports, airports, it goes on and on. There is a very wide range of things that come under this heading of infrastructure. And that's where we've seen a lot of funding already from the Asia Development Bank and from the World Bank. The Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada scene is a little bit different. It's an interaction of different responsible authorities in the United States that involve federal government, state government, municipal government, and some other other responsible authorities as well. In countries like New Zealand and Australia, there's a default towards investment that doesn't hurt anybody. And economists would call that Pareto optimality rather than a broader optimal sort of investment decision. And then, of course, when you're actually building infrastructure, you're faced by local authorities that will put in place a lot of regulation around safety issues, noise issues, traffic issues, hours of work, different compliance requirements that can make that very difficult and mean it takes a long time. In these Western countries, quite a lot of this infrastructure is about connecting up suburbs because that's where people are living much more. Is infrastructure investment a good stimulus to help economies grow out of their COVID-19 contractions? I don't think that infrastructure investment is a very good counter-cyclical tool because it is not a cyclical feature. So if it takes a year or two years or sometimes a lot longer to actually get bulldozers on the ground after a political or a parliamentary decision has been made on spending, then really that's got nothing to do with the fiscal conditions that are in place at the time. We've been through a very unusual time with COVID. We've all, in one way or another, suffered huge contractions in the economy during part of the year. And that seems to almost from a political and popular point of view have led to a lot of people saying, surely we can spend to do something to get out of this. And sure, we can. But any decisions around spending on infrastructure should be long-term decisions, not short-term decisions. Can you elaborate on that? 
Infrastructure investment increasingly is capital intensive rather than labour intensive, and it can be very slow to put in place. And that means that it isn't a particularly fast moving source of stimulation. And quite often today, it needs special skills. Those might need to be imported. And right at the minute, we're finding that with COVID type supply chain bottlenecks, quite a lot of materials required for infrastructure are in short supply or will take a long time for delivery. How is the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission approaching COVID-19 related bottlenecks and longer term issues within the sector? of projects and plans at micro levels into a broader macro story. And we've got a pipeline of projects there in the future so that we're trying to get away from the cyclical boom bust nature of investment in infrastructure that's been there in the past. But our real focus actually isn't short term and it's not COVID. It's a 30 year focus. And over that 30 year period, we're very interested because we're driven by climate change, by demographics and by technology change. So I don't think it's a classic counter-cyclical policy, but we do know at the moment with COVID. What do you see as top long-term infrastructure investment priorities looking towards the post-COVID-19 future? Climate change and the possibility for green development in infrastructure is terribly important. We're going to see much more use of electric vehicles, much more use of electric generation as opposed to all fossil fuels, and more interest in renewables like wind generation and others right through the system. In a way we haven't previously, we've got more data and information as people have changed their habits and we've seen less commuting, changes in use of public transport, all those things are very important for infrastructure. And are people going to work more from home? If so, they need more infrastructure in the suburbs and maybe less in the centre city. But these are long-term features. What kinds of infrastructure do you think will be important for Asia and the Pacific to mitigate climate change? And how does this align with existing project focus? Most of the challenges are in East Asia, uh, where the rivers hit the seas, because that's where the populations are. It's where the agricultural economy is. It's where the issues around building dams, river flows and rain patterns is important and where saline intrusion from the ocean is important. And so I guess Japan, in some respects, has had an attitude, which is you can build hard infrastructure to protect yourself from some of these things, hence the seawalls and so on around much of the island. But more and more as we learn and see some of the examples in that, we do have to think about green infrastructure, which for us in New Zealand, we are thinking about quite a lot. And that means containing and managing water flows, which might be out of rivers, but maybe out of rainfall in ways where we can get natural movements of the water and natural pooling and then gradual release. We're building wetlands, which will gradually absorb rainfall, sorry, which will absorb rainfall very quickly when it comes and then gradually release it without flooding. So looking at those flooding green infrastructures pushes you in quite a different position from simply putting out concrete seawalls and so on, as we might have in the past. I think we'll see more of that around the place. And there's going to have to be a lot of investment in plant selection and so on to withstand some of those issues. But new thinking on infrastructure is needed as much as old concrete-based infrastructure. To wrap up, from an infrastructure perspective, how can countries in the region work together to build back better after COVID-19 and promote sustainable growth? Of course, we're interested in international or global cooperation. 
But because infrastructure is typically not traded between countries, although it's an input into what's traded between countries, then there are limits into how much you get flowovers between countries in this. We would always look at what is best practice around the region and how we get harmonized systems. We're looking for common standards, common digital platforms, common ways of doing these things. We've seen that with the recent G7 meetings, they've talked about Build Back Better World. And in that sense, they're also trying to get good standards, but also play quite a bit of focus on the role of international financial institutions, regional development agencies and private capital and set good lending standards. And I think the governments have a role around setting standards, and those standards would be around digital platforms. But they also do involve some things where there are quite different views around the region in terms of data privacy, who owns data, cybersecurity, and some other geostrategic important things, as well as simply the sort of stuff that I'm interested in, which is economics. And so the more we can get those standards, the better. The more those standards work for a wide range of countries and economies, the better. We always felt in APEC that we wanted to see harmonization and interconnectivity. This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. See the show notes for the transcript and related material. For more information about us, please visit adbi.org.